Welcome to the Archive Room Podcast. The Nation Station, Men's Radio. Fast am I, I'm Judith Lay, and I'm very pleased to find you waiting for me at the door to the Archive Room, the place where we keep stories of island life in years gone by, told by the people who were there. So, come on in. Sit down and make yourself comfortable and let's listen to this week's selection. In the archive room this week, I'm pausing at the shelf labelled Transport so we can learn about car manufacturing Peel and a summer season on another of the island's lost railways. But first, we left the archive room last week with an unanswered question. David Collister was talking with Wilson Gibb, who for 20 years was manager of the Douglas Horse Tram Service. We heard how Wilson coped with visiting dignitaries, even royalty, as well as the huge number of holidaymakers who descended on Douglas in the 1950s. Such was the demand that the trams were on the tracks each day from morning until midnight, and maintaining this level of service meant having around 90 horses in the stables. So let's pick up the conversation with the inevitable question. Where did the manure go then? Well, in my days it all went on the parks. <laughs> A lot of used to come and take it away. So now we know. Wilson Gibb ended his working life as horse tram service manager, but it certainly wasn't how he started. Let's get the full story now. It started when the Douglas Town Commissioners approved the Douglas Tramway Bill. David Collister takes up the story. It provided for a three-foot gauge track for horse-drawn cars and by August of 1876 it was operational, but only from Burnt Mill Hill, the area latterly called Summerland, through to the bottom of Broadway, though the following winter the track was completed through to what was then the newly built Peveril Hotel. The Douglas horse trams were created through the expertise of a retired civil engineer named Thomas Lightfoot. In their prime, the trams carried over half a million passengers a year. When the entrepreneurial businessmen faced bankruptcy following the crash of Dumble's Bank, it became necessary for the town commissioners to take over the running of the trams, and this they did in 1902. Today's guest was the horse trams manager for Douglas Corporation for some 20 years. But as young Wilson Gibb, just out of school, he began work as a clerk in the Corporation Transport Department. I started in October of 1949, we worked at a great big long sloping desk and you sat on a stool. In front of us each we had a blue or black inkwell and a red inkwell and pen and nibs, that was mm. all. And all the ledgers were leather bound and everything had to be written in pen and ink. What you had to do in those days as a junior, you had to learn eventually every single job practically that was in the office because if anyone went off sick, then you had to sort mm. of step in and what mm. have you. What sort of money would you get as a starter then? Can you remember that? Uh, yes, I do, 30 shillings, yeah. £1.50. I lived down the level Colby and out of that I had to pay, I think it was 7 and 6 or something like that for the workman's ticket mm. to come into Douglas. Once I got to Douglas, I travelled free along the promenade on the yellow buses. I was there for, from 1949 to 1951 and then I had to do conscription like uh, yes. people of our age did That's right. and I was in the RAF for two years and then when you came out I think there was some sort of regulation that said you had to be taken back for at least six months if I remember rightly mm-hmm. anyway I went back and saw the manager and I was taken on at uh, four pounds a week now there's a, a princely yeah. four pounds a week <laughs> 
I was sort of doing general office work, and then the person who was doing the, the schedules and timetables and stuff like that, I think he left in uh, something around about the late 50s or something like that, and I took over. Timetables are, uh, are fairly easy, really, because the manager was set out what he required and you would have yeah. to do it. The most complicated thing of all was the schedules. Now, the schedules were written with a pencil, and it was an 8 h and that, in hardness terms, is, is like writing with a nail. The schedule was written on uh, double post-size books, yeah. which I suppose really about nearly three feet by what, 18 inches yes. or something like that. And we had to do a copy for the chief inspector down at uh, the Jubilee Clock, it was in those days, and uh, two copies for up at the bus depot. And in the winter time, they were done every single day, and they had to be up at the bus depot before four o'clock every day. The yeah. men's duties for the following right. day. It was like really doing a jigsaw. Did you get any involvement at that stage with the horse trams or just buses? Right from junior days, when the horse trams were running, you had to go downstairs to what was known as the ticket office and have to take pay-ins when the conductors came in. But it was so busy that the conductors would be coming in between four o'clock and just before five and making what they called part pays in. So you got to know about the schedule on the trams, you got to know the conductors and virtually how the, how the thing operated. But on top of that, because I was a country boy and couldn't get home for lunch, obviously, in the lunch hour, I spent most of my time down in the tram shed because I was brought up in the country and horses were my sort of thing. And I would mix in down there and if there was a tram they'd shunted, I would help out. And, and, right. and through that, you got to know that sort of So you were get, getting this rounded education, really, exactly. I suppose. Right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yes. Let's talk about the horse trams now. You took over as manager then in, what, 71, was it? At, uh, I took over as manager late 1971. And then, funny enough, my first big job was 1972 when the Queen came on the on oh, the tram yeah. and travelled from the sea terminal over to Greensill's Corner, where there was a, a platform there and all the, the councillors met her and what have you. Yes, yeah. yes. The name that I suppose most people will think of is the toast rack. It's called the toast rack because it looks like a toast rack, you know, <laughs> and, that's all, and that's all there's to it. The trams which we use, obviously, only on very, very fine days indeed. And some of the drivers like them very much indeed because they're lighter and easier to drive oh, yes. than, than they are for the heavier trams. When I say heavier there, it's a point that needs to be emphasised over and over again. Some people think, oh, look at them poor horses are pulling these trams. In actual fact, those trams roll along very, very easily indeed. You can actually put one of those trams on the level with one hand. that's right. These roller bearings on the axles are so efficient that it makes these trams very easy Mm -hmm. to pull indeed. The stopping is easy because the driver just puts the brake on and holds the the, the horse back with the reins. It's the starting the, that's uh, the, the hard pull. part, yes. yes. And that's up to the driver. It's the better the driver, the easier it is for the horse to start. I saw a picture of, of a tram with a pitched roof. What was, what, what was that? Well, well, like a V-shape. Well, that, <laughs> we used to know that as the ice cream cart. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't used very much. It was only a, a 32-seater tram. And in actual fact, eventually, going back into the 70s, that was converted into a shop, which we used to trundle outside the tram depot in the daytime, push back in and again at night time. If we move to uh, 1976, you had a big job to organise it. That was the centenary in 76, wasn't it? And we, we tried to do something similar to 1956, and that's have the parade of horses. Yeah. And this was down at the area down by at the sea terminal. Mm. 
and Anne Moore, who was the leading light in the horse circles in those days, was coming along to, to drive a tram. And this was number 14 double-decker tram, which was on loan from the... Uh, uh, Transport Museum in London, wasn't it? I just can't bring it to mind, the name yeah. of it at the moment. Yeah. Anyway, because there were so many trams involved and, and there was so many dignities involved to have seats, we had to do something rather peculiar, and that's had at least the leading tram and the second tram run the wrong way up the track. But you see, the horses are trained so well, and what we didn't appreciate, and we should have done really, the horse which was pulling the double-deck tram with the, the top dignitaries on, including mm. Anne Moore, who was the, supposed to be driving it, yeah. decided... This wasn't the way to go. It was on the wrong track. It was on the wrong track. (laughs) The horse knew it. The horse's name was Sarah. And the chairman at the time was Alderman Griffin. And he did no more but jump off, get a hold of the horse's head. And although he was quite elderly at the time, he ran most of the way along the promenade with that horse. Really? Yes. Once it started off, I think then it it realised, well, you know, well, it's not so bad after all. They must know what they're doing. We've got to earn with us. (laughs) Look at more uh, gloomy things, accidents, because there have been accidents, haven't there? I can't recall any very, very serious accidents. I think mm. there may have been in years gone by. Yeah. But we've had accidents where the horses have bolted, and I can recall one. It was a Sunday night, and it happened down at the Derby Castle, and the most vulnerable time when a horse has got to bolt is when it's been transferred from one end to the other. Right. Because the driver's got a hold of a metal bar, and the conductor's got its head... And on this particular night, a fire engine came along, its klaxon going, and the horse decided, I've had enough of this, and headed off from Derby Castle, trying to get to the stables, would you believe. We've had other accidents of a similar nature at this most vulnerable time when the horse has been turned from one side to the other. If something happens, spooks it, and it goes, obviously the driver can't hold it. Then the iron bar goes down to the ground, it hears the clanking, and that makes Makes it worse. worse, But I have to say that I think in most cases what the horse tries to do is get back to the stables. Wilson Gibb sharing with David Collister memories of his years as manager of the Douglas Horse Tram Service. In 2005, we had the chance to witness a very unusual car rally in the Isle of Man. From around the world came vehicles that had been manufactured in Peel, including the P-50s. There are still a number of people who worked at the factories of Peel Engineering and West Marine where the little P-50s were made. And recently, I was delighted to meet Celia Jockin and Edith Cutsforth, who made up the fibreglass bodies for the cars. Celia Jockin was then Celia Hall and Edith Cutsforth was Edith Quayle. When Edith left school, she went to work at Peel Engineering. I was 14 then, in the July, and I was 15 in the August. What would they pay you then? One pound a week. pound a week. (laughs) What were you actually doing when you were 14 or 15 then? Exactly the same as I was doing 40 years later. What, fibreglass? Yeah. This was with Peel Engineering. Peel Engineering, Just give us an idea of exactly where that was then in Peel. Just up from the harbour, up the River Neb, opposite the power station. Yeah. And what yeah. sort of things were they doing at that time? Were they making fiberglass boats mostly or what? Not at that time. No. It was a sports car body which fitted, I think it was the standard 8 or standard 10 car, fitted onto the chassis. And the full bin racing fairings, which 
Jeff Duke Jeff used. Right. And what, what age would you be, Celia? I was, about I was 16 when I started. Because it had the case of going there, or there was only the fish factories, <laughs> which yeah. nobody ever wanted to go in, <laughs> or there was the knitting factory. The I think that was all the Another one was the cotton mills in the Union Mills. Oh, yeah, of yeah. course. Yes, yeah. yeah. Now, this working with fibreglass then, fibreglass, it is a fibre that you have to mix yeah. with some sort of resin of some yeah. sort. Of. It was uh, like a matting, and you cut it to shape, and then you soaked it up with the resin, and then you have to roll it so there's no air bubbles left in it, and then uh, leave it to go hard. It's a sticky job, isn't it? Very sticky. Your clothes go hard and you smell, your breath smells. Well, we used to have a <laughs> pair of jeans which we put over our normal trousers, and yeah. you'd wear them for weeks. Weeks and weeks without washing them. <laughs> you went into making the P50 cars. How many sections would there be to a P50 vehicle then? There was the two. full body, wasn't there? Was only two, the body really. and the door. Body, body and the door. door. That was and it. The, yeah. How precise had you to be with measurements, though? They make a pattern first, then... Yes. We make the mould on top with the fibreglass. Right. That comes out, you polish it up, and then mm. you lay up into that mould. What you had to polish, we used to use like mansion polish, didn't yeah. we? That was hard graft. Now, the moulds had to be was, highly so polished. So it would free the fibreglass piece yes. from yes. it. Yes. yes. And then, was there some finishing to do on them? If the mould was good and yeah. perfect, just the trimming yeah. of the edges and... Yeah, to fit your windows and your doors and bits and pieces like that. Right. And then they go off to a paint shop, would they? No, no that's your paint. You, you did your colour oh, right. was made first, yeah. yeah. Colour yeah. goes on first. So it was a pretty efficient process, though. Oh, it was yeah. very good. Yeah, yeah. it's very efficient. Was that this really had been worked out by Cyril Cannell some long oh, time ago? Oh, yes. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely what you're brilliant. talking about here is hard work. You don't normally thought, think of it as men's work, wouldn't you, I suppose? Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of people yeah, were... If, well, if you'd have seen us... A lot of people coming in were amazed to see girls, girls working. working. Yeah. Did you yeah. have fun? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I better not ask. <laughs> Especially oh, yeah. if anybody annoyed us, we just got with a resin brush and went after them. <laughs> the Very good, yeah. 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 But you did other jobs apart from this, of course. Oh, yes. I mean, yes. you've shown me pictures from your albums here of... Uh, well, you, you were down in a sewer, I think, weren't you? Yes. Really? What were you doing down there? <laughs> Fixing a pipe, sealing joint of a pipe because they couldn't get another pipe of the same size. All right. They you, had to wait for it. Yeah. You'd be fiberglassing yeah. over. What was the most unusual things that you did, do you think? Working on top of the gasometer, I think, was, was quite a good yes. job. Was it? Yes. Douglas, really? yes, yes. yes. Oh, Straight up the side, covered the top of the off the tank, oh, the gasometer there. Yeah. But yeah. the seagull, what's it, was rotten. <laughs> The Once the tanks were full of gas, of course, the gap between the two tanks was quite a, a large gap. Well, my legs, going, it was all right going you up, but coming, coming down was the problem. Trying to find yeah. the next rung to come down the ladder. Yeah, <laughs> Peel Engineering later became West Marine, West Marine didn't it? What, yes. what happened then? I think Cyril wanted to retire, really, didn't mm. I think it's re- really what it was. Yeah. So five of us, five of the staff bought them out. So the job went on similar in a similar way? Yeah, similar way, but we did a lot more boats then. We worked a lot more on boats. Just bigger work, really. And then we started using a bit more machinery to make put the fibreglass on with, which was a different system. Like, But that was quicker. If you were both 15 or 16 now and you had uh, a limited opportunity for jobs, would you go and do it all again? I think so. Yeah, I, I think so. I like it that. Was, it was it was yeah. fun, but it was hard, hard graft at times because we were doing men's work at times, especially when it come to your big thirty-five foot motor sales because you were oh, yeah. you were yeah. pulling on big pulleys, metal, you know the pulleys, yeah. weren't we? Yeah. To put the two halves of a boat together. Eventually, you know. then you'd get paid a bit more than thirty bob a week, would you? Eventually, eventually, eventually. it wasn't a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> eventually, yeah. Celia Jockin and Edith Cutsforth. 
who between them spent the best part of 50 years getting sticky fibreglass fingers. And they remained firm friends ever since. The Nation Station makes radio. And the last little gem resting on the shelf marked transport is a conversation with Alfie Gilmore. A plumber by trade, Alfie spent one glorious summer season on the Douglas Head Marine Drive Railway, as he now tells David Collister. Douglas Head Marine Drive Railway Company wanted drivers and conductors. So I went up to a gentleman's house by the name of Mr Orton. He lived in a house called the Hollies on the corner of Winnington Road, Woodburn Road. Mm. Very nice gentleman. And he said, well, when can you start? And I said, well, tomorrow if you like. Well, he said, it's not quite tomorrow either. Next week? Yes, certainly. Well, he said, first of all, he said, well, you'll have to have a uniform. I thought, uniform? Yes, certainly. Oh, well, because he gave me a chitty, you know, signed a paper to go to lay the uh, tailor's mm. corner of Duke Street. Yeah. And this was about 1936 or, well, I think 1936 or 37. And uh, I went down there, got measured off for a beautiful blue serge suit, brass buttons on. Mm. Goy, I was an admiral. <laughs> <laughs> and a peak cap as well. Oh, yes. beautiful stuff. I got that on, started up in Douglas Head Marine Drive. He went up there on the push bike, of course. Uh, I was in lodgings in Hillesy Road with people by the name Mrs Duncan. I spent the summer up Douglas Head Marine Drive Railway. It was, it was quite good, really, driving some days and conducting others. Did you have to learn to drive oh, a yes. train? Oh, yes. There was a, a, the engine uh, was very similar, I suppose identical, to the MER cars now that was mm. the brass handle yeah. on it. And it was a dead man's handle that if you let it go, it was spin back to zero and it would stop the car. Mm. It was an identical effort to the MER that the big arm went up to the overhead cable, you see. It was a roller contact and that was the contact for the electric car. Those days, of course, if you wanted to go to Port Sudrick on the electric car, you could get on a boat at the Victoria Pier on a ferry and there was a three-piece orchestra playing on the ferry those days. You could go across the water to the steps at the breakwater, go up on an incline railway to Douglas Head, which is just below Manx Radio, yes. on the electric car to Port Strudwick. You get out of Port Strudwick station, walk about 100 yards to another incline railway down to the hotel. It was very like an old-fashioned farmhouse. Those days, it was a wonderful mecca. Boy, there was hundreds and hundreds of people going to Port Strudwick daily. And even in the winter, people went down to Port Strudwick. It was a good pub. They really did do good business. Now then, when your day or two or three hours, whatever you spent at Port Strudwick was over, you could get on a boat at Port Strudwick, which is a little pier there, and one of the chaps who ran the boat from Port Strudwick to Douglas was Lewin Keane. On the Marine Drive there, at the entrance, which is a very splendid entrance there, where the toll gate was, yes, and Mr. there Shimon, was a house there. And Mr Shimon and his family lived in the toll gate house. My father, who was a stonemason, and his father as well, they helped to build that house and the track and the bridges, but they were really beautiful. If you go along there, you can see the, the old plinths still there. Mm. Now then, when they altered the Marine Drive during the war or after the war and they took the track up, they altered the toll gates as well because they took away the living accommodation and they took away the little stile that you used to walk through, you know, the little toll gate, I should say. Can you remember how much the toll was going through the toll at uh, the Marine Drive? Yes, well, if you were walking from either end, if you walked up Douglas Head into the Marine Drive, one of the Shimmons family would 
be in attendance to take, I think it was a penny each, penny each to walk along the Marine Drive. If you were going to come back the same way, it was tuppence, you see, so it was a penny either way. When we walked in droves of people from Douglas on a Good Friday, when we walked along Kewegg River through Kewegg Village, we used to go in the back footpath behind Keith Shimmons to avoid going through the entrance of the Marine Drive, which you had to pay a toll on, you see. <laughs> I can remember when I had younger brothers in a pram. Well, of course, when you're going along this footpath, you had two styles to lift the baby and pram over <laughs> as well. It was great fun. It was all right in the fine weather, but sometimes it would rain with a bit of a drag. When you were working on the railway then, did you have to work long hours in the summer? Yes. We went up there at 8 o'clock in the morning, but Mr Kringle, the general foreman of the track, I think it was a Mr Cashin as well, those lads were there before us, and a fellow by the name, Mr Sackey, he was one of the boiler men because they had their own generating station out of the Marine Drive, and of course it was coal-fired, it was coal-fired, and then the steam drove the turbines, and uh, did never let them down. Mm. But Mr Sackey, he was one of the furnace men out there. He was out at perhaps four or five o'clock in the morning and at night he was late there at night as well. The boilerman was late there at night to uh, dampen down just to keep the boilers warm. Did you have any other duties apart from driving and conducting? I mean, do you have other work to do? Yes, sometimes you would have your turn off the electric car yeah. and you would take a turn to go with a chap by the name of Dougie Cowley. He was a permanent wayman. Now, he used to go along with about one gallon tin of grease in one hand and a long-handled brush like a Turk's head in the other. And every now and again, particularly on the inside of the bins on the track, he would put a little smear of grease, not on top of the rail, but only on the side of the rail. Mm. Now, you never put the grease on top because you would cause a skid. If the emergency arose that the driver wanted to stop the car, now the brake system is very clever, very old-fashioned, of course. He used to pump sand out of a container on the tram car, and that sand went on the railway line, and, of course, that was gritty. So it acted as a brake? It as a brake. By the way, when you just go past Tom Sherman's tollgate house, when you look over the railings towards the sea, do you know there's a little area there, do you know what it's called? Fiddler's Green. Now, the idea of it being called Fiddler's Green was long before the electric railway was thought of. People had different types of enjoyment those days, and it was a nice walk. It was a footpath originally, you see, just a footpath like around the cliff edges. And you used to go up there, particularly on the summer's evenings, and they would have concerts, perhaps a, a, a banjo, but in particular there was a violinist and it was called Fiddler's Green. Now I don't want a harp nor a halo not me Just give me the breeze and the fast rolling sea And I play me old squeeze box as we sail along With the wind and the ringing to sing me a song Wrap me up in me oil skin to jump hard No more by the docks I'll be seen Just tell me old shipmates I'm taking a trip mate And I'll see you someday in Fiddler's Alfie Gilmore was describing his summer season working on the Marine Drive Railway, topped off with a little music from another national treasure, the Manin Folk. 
In the archive room next week, it's anniversary time. Sir William Hillary's vision for a service dedicated to saving lives at sea became a reality in a trendy London tavern on the 4th of March, 1824. And to commemorate the 200th anniversary of the foundation of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, the RNLI, I'll be looking at the file-marked life stories, where Ian Cottier and Robert Kelly share highlights from the colourful life story of Sir William Hillary. I really hope you'll join us for that in the archive room again next Thursday, just after six, here on Your Manx Radio. But for now, let's turn off the lights and close the door. I'm Judith Lay, saying thank you for listening, and I wish you a very good evening. Mm-hmm.